Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, very evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send us your Bible questions, that would help in our answering process. If you want to email us, it's questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to clarify spelling, our website is calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to a window where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. every single weekday. Noting that point and the availability to answer your questions and send them to us there on the right-hand side of the screen, we'll have a banner below our faces so that you can write down the email address for later use. If you'd like to join us on social media, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. However, given the reliability of tech tyranny, we don't know when or why we'll be taken off, and we have had those risks before. So just in case we're not broadcasting and we don't give you prior information as to it being our fault or the technology's fault, we will still be on our website, which we encourage you to make your regular stopping point in engaging with us and sending us your questions. As long as your Bible questions are sincere about the Bible and in the form of a question, we will be happy to address them. Just make sure that when you send them to us, they fit those three criteria, and we'll be happy to engage with them, not only in the format that we're intending to put forward here. No harm, no foul, no judgment. We'll, of course, make sure that we put truth before everything else, but we also want to encourage you, if uh, you'd like anonymity, perhaps discussing controversial issues, as long as they're pertaining to the Bible, full bars. (laughs) We'll be happy to engage with you on those matters. We're also going to be following up on a topic we discussed on Tuesday, Wednesday for those listening on Reach Radio and our radio affiliates. But before we get into that, we want to make sure God speaks more than we do. Uh, Peter, would you like to start us off in a word of prayer? Yep. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to have a relationship with you, Lord, and study your word right now. So I pray that uh, as we go through these questions, that we would answer them in a way that honors you and honors your truth, that those listening would be blessed by it and encouraged in their walk with you. And in your name, amen. That is true. Now, building on where we left off on Tuesday, dealing with the hedonistic propaganda that permeates our culture in this day and age, put it in a fancier way, The concern that a lot of people have, and maybe even those in support of it, are going to bring up the idea of not only are these things going to be taught to children, whether we want them to or not, but in the ways they're taught to children. It's not just in the schools, but it's also in entertainment. Now, the call is for consistency. If the issue is with homosexual, polyamorous, bestial relationships, any form of deviation founded on hedonism, that's what we're going to be using as this all-encompassing term, when it's presented in a heterosexual sense romantically in children's shows, media, and so forth, we don't bat an eye. But when it comes to any portrayal or inclusion of homosexual media, homosexual inclusion, or 
polyamorous, uh, polygamy, any of these sort of things that go beyond what the Bible recognizes as a moral marital relationship. Are we inconsistent in that regard? If so, why do we still hold that position? And if not, why? Yeah, no, it's an interesting one that I kind of thought of. So I, I tend to like to attack my own arguments sometimes and see if they hold up. Uh, so a question or a argument that I thought of on what me and Sean talked about on Tuesday would be like, okay, well, if you're saying that we can't introduce sexual ideals to children, what do you make of the idea that, say, in Disney movies, you have Cinderella where a woman and a man meet, they have a romantic attraction towards one another, and they end up getting married at the end. Would you be okay if it was, instead of a prince and a princess, would you be okay if it was two princes? You know, And it's not gratuitous. It's not like uh, very sensualized kind of material, but it's just instead of the prince and the princess, it is two princes. Or if at a certain point in a movie, the princess realizes that, oh, no, actually, I'm a prince, and she develops and she transitions in that way, would you be okay with that? Um, similar kind of argumentations happening from people in Florida, like teachers in Florida right now saying, like, okay, well, um, if it's all out of the classroom, like, I can't teach it within the curriculum, does that mean that I can't talk about my family? And most people are like, well, yeah, you can't talk about your family. That's just your, your teacher. Either to teach about, you know, history and science and mathematics. What, what does your personal life have to do with what's going on in the classroom? And I would even be willing to push it a little bit further. I'd be willing to say, yeah, as a Christian, I would be uncomfortable with a teacher bringing their private life into the classroom if it wasn't a heterosexual relationship. Now, here's where the consistency comes in. Why do you hold that position and not have your own head explode? Yeah, exactly. So uh, here's where it comes from, and this is very vital and important. And by the way, we talked about this briefly on Tuesday, and we alluded to the idea that next Tuesday we'll get into it in more detail, and that is what is a Christian's role in fighting against cultural division, right? So uh, if a culture is going in a particular direction that we find to be morally apprehensible, What's the role of the Christian in defying that movement? And we talked briefly on Tuesday where, as Christians, we're not actually commanded to politically stand up for things. We're not said that we have to do that. There are certain passages that I can point to that allude to the idea that we should, that we ought to. good example of this would be actually be in the exile books, right? Uh, Jeremiah would be a good example, or in Daniel as well, where as the people of Israel are being exiled, some prophets were saying, well, if we're exiled out of the land— let's not do anything, right? God's going to bring us back to Israel, so we're not going to build up our resources here. We're not going to develop our communities or anything like that. We're just going to wait till we go back to Israel. And the message of the prophets was always, no, you need to seek good for the land in which you dwell. And the reason why you had such amazing movements of God within the Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire is because of the Christians who held to that. So The Jews. That's right. Christ wasn't around yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, the Jewish people uh, who held to that kind of ideology. And we as Christians are kind of in a similar, uh, similar situation. We are outside of the promised land, if you want to put it that way. We're not home. We're not in the kingdom of heaven. But we should seek good for the land in which we dwell. Now, to the level that we fight for that, that's kind of between you and the Lord. But what I'm going to lay out is why we should fight for this, why we believe it's beneficial. So in the book of Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Now, what th- there's many layers to that passage. It's one of the more deep Proverbs that I think we take as being more shallow. We're just like, oh, yeah, fear the Lord. Gotcha. Uh, it's actually incredibly deep, and that's why it's repeated. Uh, the book of Proverbs is very short and is very condensed. Whenever there's a repeated proverb, it's probably because it's very, very important and more deep than you probably thought originally. One of the reasons why it's so deep is because of where it's positioned throughout the book. The majority of times where it's spoken is actually in the first 10 chapters, and it's juxtaposed amongst how one person gains wisdom and one person gains foolishness. Now, what this passage, one of the layers that we can discern from this passage, is that since, as Proverbs 8 says, God created the universe according to wisdom, meaning that there was a design to the universe, and that includes your body. That design carries with it intent in an ideal. The further you stray from that intent and the further you stray from that ideal, the more damage you will do to yourself. So, for instance, we as human beings were designed to have to drink water. That's part of our design. That's part of the wisdom in which God designed us. If I don't fear the Lord in that aspect, meaning if I say, yeah, you know, I know that God designed me to have to drink water, but I don't really care what God thinks and I don't really care what God says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to rebel, and I'm going to find a different way to live. If I do that, I can do that for a time, but it's going to be a very short time, and I'm going to die as a result. So the further I stray away from the ideal in God's wisdom, the more damage I'm going to do to myself. Now, certain parts of God's wisdom I can stray from and not feel the consequences of it for a very long time. So, for instance, if I get into financial miscalculation, right, if I'm not a good steward of my finances and my resources— I will feel those consequences, but it might take a little bit more time, and it might not be as detrimental if I ignore my bodily health. Now, when it comes to our sexual proclivities, our ability to be sexual beings as God created us, what happens if we deny that portion of our personhood, right? If we ignore the wisdom of God in that portion of our personhood, what would that do to us, and what would that do to our culture? Well, it would degrade it very, very quickly. This is why, by the way, I'm making this argument as a Christian, but there are plenty, and this may sound surprising to you, but you can find them. There are plenty of non-Christian, homosexual, and transgender people who totally agree with what I'm saying right now. Now, the reason why they agree with what I'm saying is because they said, is because this is the argument. If there is an ideal for our sexuality, which is one man and one woman, why is that the ideal? Because that is the only unification of man that creates more of us. No other, no other relationship can do that for you. Uh, that makes it special, and that's why governments have always played a role in marriage, because they, they need to, basically. If their country is going to continue, that particular relationship is fundamental to the culture continuing. If that relationship falls apart, everything falls apart with it, right? Friendships can fall apart. That's bad, but it's not as bad as a man and a wife relationship falling apart. Even fathers can be bad to their children, and it's still not as bad as that one central relationship falling apart, man and woman. That's why in the garden, God created man and woman. That's what bounds culture and civilization as a whole. It's very, very important. It's very vital, and it needs to be protected. When you muddle with it, when you mess with it, and you say, well, let's treat all other sexual proclivities as if they're equally acceptable, then you remove the ideal. So in other words, we don't want to make other people feel ostracized for saying having uh, homosexual parents or transgender parents or something like that. We don't want them to feel ostracized 
So let's just say there is no norm. There is no right. There is no wrong when it comes to sexual proclivities. Everything is just whatever you feel is right. That's what makes it right. If you do that, if you remove the ideal, it has very predictable repercussions, and we're actually seeing them happen right now in the United States. It's one of the reasons why Western civilization as a whole does not have a reproduction rate that is at replacement level, meaning that if things continue as they are right now, and by the way, Generation Z is way worse than millennials, and millennials are pretty bad. If things continue the way that they are, we, our population will half in the next 20 years. Now, it's actually not going to half, and there's a reason why, and that is because immigration and other cultures that are inside of our country that don't follow this kind of madness, uh, namely Islam, right? So there, there is, and this is exactly what's happening. A different in, kind of madness. That's right. And isn't there countries in Europe that are experiencing the results of this type of ideology right now? Well, France, England, and Germany, to name a few, Sweden as well, uh, nations, by the way, that overnight, and I'm speaking specifically of Sweden, became the rape capital of the world. France, in noting free speech, has gone out the window in order to accommodate to the violent riot, riots rather, excuse me, that ensue as a result of any criticism, even in passing, of the Quran or their founder, Muhammad, and, of course, the issues in Britain with the no-go zones and Muslim roving gangs, basically and grooming gangs that are being covered by their government and supported by their government, quite frankly, in order to avoid cultural, dis, uh, I guess, uh, instability. And this is all laid out for them. Um, this was an essay that was laid out by one of the uh, chief execs and Muftis, there's a term for it, but the he chief religious executive in Saudi Arabia during the time of World War II, where he wrote about the three stages that jihad, uh, I guess, establishes itself in a society. We know that Muslims aren't universally a violent people, and that Islam, even though it does command violence, most Muslims do not in, uh, act on it in that pro, uh, offensive way. But the problem is that you only need one person to detonate a bomb to take out hundreds of millions of people, especially if it's a nuclear weapon. But that point is still moot. When we're talking about the three stages of jihad in society, Muslim scholars and modern Christians, atheists, and even other Muslims are pointing this out as the plain and obvious truth throughout um, the history of Islam's interactions with the world. If Muslims constitute less than 5% of a uh, country's population, they are to follow Muhammad's model as de uh, demonstrated in Medina when he was in the minority, that he is to preach a message of peace and tolerance and that any, uh, I guess, defamation of the non-believers is to be verbal exclusively. The main passage of the Quran they cite would be to me be your religion, or to you be your religion, to me be mine. In the 5 to 10% uh, capacity. When the Muslim community starts to gain in influence and number, they are to wage jihad, but only defensively, that their, uh, I guess, takeover of the country is to be only in response to supposed attacks. And we need to understand that according to the ideology that is being, that could replace hedonism, which is equally mad, remember that they consider an attack insults, poetry, Muhammad ordered the execution of women while they were in the middle of nursing their children. That is a direct quote from the Hadith. And old men as old as I think he was in his 90s, maybe even higher, uh, because they insulted him. So noting those points, they consider verbal 
even questioning of the Islamic sources as an attack and worthy to be responded to in violence. We see this in France. Then when it goes into around the 15 to 20 percent, they are to wage offensive jihad until Muslims constitute at least a 50 percent majority. Then they can effectively say they've taken over the country because they can enforce Sharia whenever and wherever they desire. But noting this point, when we talk about the censorship that takes place in those who are quote-unquote transphobic, homophobic, whatever, all the terms and name-calling, it's better the devil you know than the devil that people don't want you to know because in either case and situation we have two ideologies that are in opposition to the truth and if the truth is the enemy then what are we standing for nothing or something and that's what we ultimately need to get down in writing that's right so while all forms of indoctrination are bad not every form of education is good, right? So you could you can be educating someone, but you can be educating them into an ideology that's bad, and therefore the result of that education is also bad. So even if we grant the premise that this education is happening in a totally above-board way, no one's trying to go over the line when it comes to sexualizing young kids, which is not the case, but let's just say, just grant that for a second, that that's what's going on. No one's going over the line. It's all happening above board. There's still a negative repercussion from that, that we do need to have ideals in, instituted within our culture. It's very important for any culture to move forward. And you cannot remove ideals without feeling massive cultural effects. Same thing is happening with the body shaming movement as well. So the idea is if we set up an ideal of what is attractive, like health and beauty and things like that through models, that will make certain people feel ostracized and less than. So we need to have them uh, being represented. And when that first came out, people were like, yeah, sure, why not? Let's have plus-size models. There's nothing wrong with that. And I still don't think there's anything wrong with that. The problem is that the transition happened very quickly from let's have this as just like it's just another alternative to fitness to becoming if you think that being fit is good for you, you are fat phobic, right? Now, that was a pretty big shift and it happened in a very short amount of time because that's how these things go now. Once you say that's not the ideal anymore, the next logical conclusion is, well, if that's not the ideal, then there is no ideal. And if you say that something is better, you're assuming a best. And that means you're assuming an ideal, and that's wrong, and that's bad, and you're, you're wrong for saying that. Yeah, it's, so It's not seeking neutrality. <clears throat> it's the promotion of the opposite. It's not calling good and evil non-existent like Buddhists. It's calling good evil and evil good. That's and right. that's the difference. And that's why, by the way, uh, many Christians back when they were trying to legalize same-sex marriage were against it. Uh, and some of them, you know, you could say, oh, the Westboro Baptist. Okay, there, there was a really tiny, minute amount of Christians that were crazy. And there doing were 12 inbred people right. in some, <laughs> some city. Yeah, the majority of Christians that were opposing it, their idea was we cannot throw out the ideal. There is a definition and a purpose for marriage between a man and a woman, and it is to create a family. And if you cannot substitute that out for anything else, you cannot say this is equally valid. No one, no one in that movement was saying we should make homosexuality illegal, but we were saying the government does have a role and a right to preserve the ideal of a marriage between one man and one woman. Why? Because that's kind of what's necessary to uh, perpetuating our 
uh, perpetuating our culture and our civilization. That's a necessary thing. So, again, it, it does differ on your own convictions before the Lord on how you do fight these things. But I thought it was important to kind of answer that question as to why should we care at all? And as Christians, do we have something to say in the political venue? And I think, again, the answer is yeah. All right. Uh, going out to our questions, this is from Nina, who wants to know, will we be clothed in heaven, or will we be like Adam and Eve when they were in the garden in Genesis chapter 2? Uh, two passages, I think, that will answer this pretty definitively. The first is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, a vision, granted, of a person that was not, in fact, dead at the time, but nonetheless a heavenly scene was shown where Joshua, who was the high priest at the time of Zachariah's ministry, was standing before God and was being accused by the devil. Uh, that's what he does. That's his name, accuser, adversary. But the angel of the Lord also stood with him, and we know the angel of the Lord to be Jesus. So noting that as the advocate, we can get further confirmation of this in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews in particular. And others. But the point being made is this. The conversation took a turn when it was pointed out that he was wearing, so he's in heaven, and noting this picture, filthy garments. Now, there's language used to describe the garments. We'll stick with filthy, but it was really, really gross. That was the point that it was trying to make. And the angel gave the order, take from him his filthy clothes, and don't leave him like that because it's holy. It says, put on him rich robes. And this is, of course, a call back to the prophet Isaiah, who notes that I will clothe you with righteousness. This is further applied literally in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, where it notes that the bride of Christ, the one who is literally being joined to the husband, that is the way Paul used it in his letters to Timothy, the church, uh, a chaste virgin to Christ, following this picture, it says she was given to be clothed with white linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints. So following this continuous picture of clothing being reflected by deeds, essentially our wardrobe is going to reflect the things that we've done in this world, the ways that we've reflected the character and nature of Christ. Now, people obviously have concerns, you know, wardrobe malfunctions, uh, loincloth issues if you're saved, you know, as though through the flames, am I going to just be, you know, running around in the skivvies <laughs> or whatever? The, the point is being made around this. We do have examples and direct application for clothes in heaven, and it's directly tied to a representation of our right relationship with God. So since they are being clothed, it's not saying that what Adam and Eve had before that was sinful, but it's noting a point that in this new creation, there are new rules being introduced. And one of them is going to be how we reflect the glory <coughs> of God, like the angels in their very being. It's going to be us in our clothing. Right. But uh, it continues on from there, and we can make further points. If you want to discuss the glorified body and all those other connotations, we've dealt with it in detail the last two days. Uh, the time of this <coughs> broadcast is April 21st, 2022, so 20 and 19 respectively, would be what we'd encourage you to listen to on your own time. But Nina, uh, with those passages in mind, I'd conclude, yes, we do have clothing articles uh, described for us in heaven, linen, this uh, sort of silk, comfortable garment. And we do have references in the Old Testament that are quoted in the New, applying to what we'll be wearing in heaven. Um, as far as the 
I guess, significance of that. It's all speculation apart from what we're told. I just stick to that. Anything you'd want to know? Yeah, just real quick point. Um, one of the main things that me and Sean have talked about often is the reason why nakedness was okay in the garden and it's not okay now is because we weren't in a fallen state. So in an unfallen state, the body itself is not wrong, but the heart that lusts can take the body, the, take the bodily form in the mind and twist it into an object of lust. That's a problem, right? So <clears throat> God wanting to protect humanity has allowed for the fall to kind of move forward in that direction. So in other words, when Adam and Eve clothed themselves with fig leaves, God could have been like, that's not how I intended you take those off. But he actually gave them better clothing, signifying that something had happened in the mind and the heart of man that had necessitated clothing, if you want to put it that way. Now in heaven, as you put it, Sean, the purpose of clothing will be different, but we will have it. So right now, one of the reasons why we have clothing is because we're fallen and sinful and there's lust and all these other problems within the heart of man that need to be curved by utilizing clothing and things like that. In heaven, that's not the case. And the easiest way I could put it to people is clothing can either be something that hides or can accentuate. So uh, there's this one comedian that I think is really funny. Uh, he calls himself fluffy. He's a little, he's a little overweight. And he talks about wearing like baggy shirts when he goes to the beach. And he's like, I don't know who I'm, who I think I'm fooling. It's not like anyone's looking at me in this baggy shirt being like, who's that really jacked guy wearing that huge trash bag over his head? You know, no one's actually thinking that this large garment, which is clearly meant to as best as it can hide my proportions is actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. That would be what Ab and Eve saw their clothing as doing in the garden to hide. But in, in uh, the new Eden, in the new heavens, the new earth, clothing is no longer going to be designed to hide, but it's going to be there to accentuate, right? Remember, the nakedness of Adam and Eve was a symbol of their purity and their innocence, just like we come into the world naked. They weren't virtuous or evil. They were just in God's image, right? They just reflected whatever God put in them. Now that we are purified, now that we have chosen to be with God, we are virtuous, right? We've actually made the decision to reject evil and to pursue good. So in a way, the clothing actually, again, accentuates the work of innocence and purity that God has done in our lives. So a uh, really interesting point, though. All right. Um, question on our website as well. What is a theophany? It's a funny word. <laughs> no. uh, a lot so, of funny words. Yeah, so theophany is usually used to describe an appearance of the Son of God before the Incarnation. So uh, prior to Jesus being born in the manger by Mary, he did—it's not like he was created in that moment, as some heretical people have insinuated, uh, but Jesus has always existed. He's eternally the Son of God, and he has always had the same purpose within the Trinity. John gives us that purpose in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So the role of the Son of God is to make known the invisible God. So when he says no one has seen God at any time, some theologians out there would be like, uh, John, a lot of people saw God, right? A lot of people saw God in the Old Testament. Moses saw God. Abraham saw God. He actually had a full conversation and meal with God. Uh, there are people who say, we saw God and we didn't die, like the parents of Samson, as well as Hagar in the wilderness, right? So there are a lot of people who see God in the Old Testament. And you're like, we're well, corrected. 
They That's right. encountered the angel of the Lord, but they called him God. Now we have examples of regular angels being mm-hmm. treated as if they were God in Revelation 19 and 21, and they get slapped upside the head real quick. Right. But in the Old Testament, they're never corrected. That's worth emphasizing. That's right. Absolutely. So when we see this angel of the Lord, this messenger of Yahweh coming along on the scene and acting in the prerogatives of Yahweh, being called Yahweh in some instances, like in Genesis chapter 18, and again, not correcting these people, receiving worship, things like that. What we as Christians recognize is, oh, this is a theophany. This is a moment where Jesus, the Son, is revealing God to man, because that's his role in the Trinity. And so he is coming alongside and clothing himself inside of some sort of flesh that people can see that they would be able to recognize God, that they would be able to see, quote-unquote, God in his glory. Now, uh, very, very important and very, very cool. And by the way, even the Jews— have recognized this. Yeah, the right? theophany would be a term they'd more prefer to use. Christophany is more coming from Christians because we recognize that as the Christ, as the Messiah. They don't necessarily, but they recognize that was God. That's right. So <clears throat> a lot of Jews actually referred to this being as the memra of the Lord, which is uh, it's the Aramaic word for, for word. And uh, it makes sense referencing, yeah. that when John says in John 1, in the beginning was the word, that's what he's referencing. His Jewish audience would have been like, oh, like the, the memory, I got you. I understand what you're talking about. And then he talks about the incarnation. And if you're a Transformers fan, there's also a term for him in the Talmud, the Metatron. Ah, yes. <laughs> but that's another topic. So let us know if that helps you out. Light dragon. Um, here's a question from Monica. This This will be fun. Um, The last trumpet in Revelation is a puzzle for some in believing the rapture happens after the seven-year Great Tribulation. I hope so. Uh, Can you please clarify why those who believe in the post-tribulation rather than the pre-tribulation position? Thank you. Well, thank you, Monica. Okay, so the question centers around basically comparing two handlings of the end times. And obviously, in order to figure out how someone came to an end, in reading scripture, you first need to understand where they started and where they got off track. Now, note two different positions, not salvation issues, by the way. If it's post-tribulation, we'll find out real quick when a seven-year peace treaty is signed and then are suddenly able to deny the doctrine of imminency. We'll get to that in a minute. The people with a pre-tribulation, or rather, if the pre-tribulation rapture is true, but the post-tribulation rapture is their position, they'll find out real quick yeah. that they were wrong. And they'll but, be very happy that they were wrong. But the point being made is, and then mid-tribulation as well, we can get into that too. But the point of emphasis that a lot of people make is on how they handle not just the book of Revelation, but a lot of New Testament passages that discuss this, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 1 Corinthians 15, respectively. But the problem actually starts, and I don't mean problem as in salvation issues, but the deviation between ideas happens not in the New Testament, but in the Old. And the reason why is because of three main assumptions that both sides are making, by the way. And we can agree on these rules, just not on the ways that they're handled, where they're applied more forcefully. The first is in regards to not just the nature of God's wrath, but the definition of God's wrath. That every time it was demonstrated in Scripture, going from the flood of Noah to Sodom and Gomorrah to Nineveh to Babylon to Jerusalem and Israel, 
Shiloh, if you will, uh, all these things, they were all following a specific pattern. And this is the pre-tribulation rapture position and the post-tribulation rapture position. God is consistent in how he judges people. First, a prophetic warning is given. A means of escape is provided for those who take him up on that warning. And once all those who have taken that offer of mercy have been completed, then and only then does judgment, and I'll emphasizing that word, judgment, fall. We both agree on that. So, so far, so level as far as our end times understanding. We're starting with the wrath of God. The second way that we uh, kind of don't really deviate but are starting to skew isn't just in the nature of God, but in the nature of mercy. Is he the kind of God that sees people through wrath, or is he the kind of God who keeps people from wrath, period? And that's a small distinction, but still a noteworthy one that's going to make a big difference when we get to the later verses. Of course, when we're talking about this, people who hold a post-tribulation rapture view usually point to examples like Daniel and his three friends, technically just the three friends, and noting that they were preserved in the flames, the wrath of man, but God was the one who preserved them from any wrath in his regard. Uh, people would turn to passages like in the flood of Noah and noting that there were still uh, hardships to be had in the ark and would note that there was a degree of judgment in that, but ultimately he saw them through the flood. He didn't keep them, you know, on some uh, orbiting satellite while the earth was being downpoured. They were preserved through it. Now notice, this is the post-tribulations handling of the text, the assumptions they're reading into it. We would look at the same text, but come to different conclusions. We'll get to that in a minute. And, of course, in regards to Sodom and Gomorrah and noting that Lot and his daughters, the wife, and deviating from any term, they still were recipients of wrath, even if given a provision of mercy. So they were close enough to it that if they didn't obey, they'd still be judged, but far enough from it so that God would preserve them being in the midst of wrath. And so this all culminates with the third and final point for the post-tribulation rapture view, which I hope to those listening, if you hold this view, I have represented you fairly. In Matthew chapter 24, when it notes, and this is Jesus speaking, we respect that guy when it comes to his view of the end times. He says, after the tribulation of those days, he will send his angels to the four corners of the earth to gather together his saints. They would apply this as the rapture. So that's the journey of the post-tribulation rapture view. They would make Matthew 24 the final word on the timing of the rapture because regardless of all the other proof texts we give them, a understanding of God's wrath is something to be preserved through and that the means of provision, which we both agree on, by the way, are not from the world's wrath or wrath in any degree, but from his ultimate wrath. That's the provision. So the post-tribulation rapture view makes that its foundation. It's saying, well, we believe the words of Jesus. Now, you and I were pre-tribulation, so we would say, we don't believe the words of Jesus? <laughs> no, we handle them differently. That's why this is not a non-negotiable issue. We emphasize this passage over others. No, it's not starting the New Testament. It's how you look at the old and then reading that into the new. When it comes down to the plain meaning of the text, and they go to Matthew 24 and say, after the tribulation, then it says you'll gather together. How else could you take that? I can think of two ways. It's either referring to the rapture, as you suggest, or it's referring to final judgment. But noting that point, 
if the final judgment at the hands of Jesus to all the nations, for he says to those on his right side and on his left, depart from me, uh, enter into the joy of your Lord, to those on his right and on the left, depart from me, you practicers of lawlessness, as much as you did not do it to the least of these my brethren, as much as you did do it, so on and so forth. But that's their authority. The post-tribulation rapture view would take anything else that we would throw at them in favor of our position and say, because wrath, by definition, as I've laid it out, is something God preserves us through, the tribulation's no exception. Because Jesus plainly said in Matthew 24, after the tribulation of those days, then judgment, then he will gather together his people. That's how I understand the rapture. Everything else is going to be secondary. Now, here's where we flip over. What would be our proof text for the pre-tribulation rapture? And again, I don't want to put you on the spot. I, I invest a lot of energy in this, if you can tell. Do you want me to cover both sides, or would you like to cover our position? No, you go for it. Okay, so the pre-tribulation rapture view, just like in the three stages we covered for the post-tribulation rapture view, starts in the same place. We see that the three-stage process, God's warning, God's provision of mercy, and then judgment falling after all those who have rejected that mercy well, I guess are sorted through. We would look at that as just a foundational truth as the post-tribulation rapture view with one exception, stage two. When the fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, was it while Lot was in the city or was it the moment he left? We would not emphasize Lot's wife, you know, and the connotations therein, we would note the fact the angels <coughs> emphasized we cannot destroy the city until you leave, that they were separate entirely from God's wrath. Now notice, minute difference, but the handling is important later on. In Noah's flood, the rain did not start until the door on the ark was closed. We don't say the ark was preserving them through God's wrath. We say the ark is an archetype, puns if you will, of God providing an escape entirely from the water. If you're in the boat, you're not in the water, though you're in the water. Note the point, right? So the point being made is doubling down on these things. Then when we get to the passages that would confirm the proof text of the rapture, this is where we get into stage three. Not just a provision from wrath, not just the keeping you through wrath, that difference, but we would make a further emphasis. Again, we both look at 1 Thessalonians 4. We both believe there is a rapture. I don't have to challenge them on that. We both believe that it is a resurrection. It will be in a moment, the twinkling of an eye. It will be resulting in us in glory. Pre and post, don't disagree on that. I won't use 1 Corinthians 15 against them. I'd emphasize it if we start misunderstanding what the rapture is, but here's the point. I would go to 1 Thessalonians, not 4, but 5, where it states, God has not predestined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's the kicker. Is wrath the tribulation? If we can settle on that point, then our positions are clear and we can get into other proof texts, like the doctrine of imminency. No man knows the day or the hour. Daniel 9 spells out clearly how we'll know when the tribulation starts and be able to know the day or hour when it ends. If it's a post-trib view, we have an idea, and Jesus' words are moot. That would be a secondary argument, not a primary, but a secondary. We want to deal with how we're handling the text, because we're both going to the Bible, we both love Jesus, we're both saved. 
We're both participants in the rapture. But the test is how we're handling the text. And if these little deviations, I won't even say mistakes to be respectful, these little deviations along the way make a big difference later on, we have to ask who is supported by the most data. Now, I don't want to take up the whole broadcast and going over all the verses for my own position because, believe it or not, if I hold a position, I believe it. Call me a bigot. But the point being made is on this. We understand enough about those who disagree with us to at least give them the benefit of the doubt. I've read uh, what was, uh, I remember the name of his book, not the individual, Michael Brown, Dr. Michael Brown, and why I don't fear the Antichrist. He is a post-tribulation rapture view. I didn't think I'd lose my salvation reading it. <laughs> and in the same way, it didn't change my position in hearing his arguments, but I am secure enough in my own beliefs to have thought them through and respect my fellow believers, especially a former, uh, well, a presently, he's still Jewish. I don't know if you can transition. Uh, he's uh, a Messianic Jewish scholar and evangelist who's been at this a lot longer than me to at least hear him out. It's the same is true for any position that I disagree with. The same is true for even positions that I think are against the Bible. But the point being made is that little deviations in the text are what make a big difference later on on this issue. And I'm repeating it over and over again so that we provide clarity on this. People who disagree with us on the end times, at least not in major ways, are still Christians. And we need to remind ourselves of that so that when we're talking to them, we can sort of know when to back out that this has gone from friendly banter to a uh, uh, drag-out, uh, I guess, brawl of ideas, and we're going to end up losing more than we'd gain if this conversation is a positive one. Sometimes I just have to throw in little corrections here and there and hope that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. I hope they'd pray the same for me if I was in error. I don't think I am, but that's why I believe what I do. The emphasis and point is on that, the dis minor distinction in what God's wrath affects and constitutes and emphasis on Matthew 24 or 1 Thessalonians 15. We can talk about imminency. We can talk about the nature of God's wrath as laid out in Revelation. We can talk about plenty of other things, but Monica, that would be how I'd overview this. If you want more information, I either email us or I'd recommend resources like Don Stewart and his books on this matter. I'd recommend Joel um, Rosenberg and his ministry on the Joshua Fund and plenty of other people who hold this view and have put out extensive resources on why they believe this. But noting this point as well, if you're willing to hear the other side, that shows that you're at least secure in yours and not uh, hard-headed if you find out that you're wrong, so that you'd say, well, I don't care what the truth is, this is what makes me comfortable. If the Lord is post-tribulation rapture, then I'm not a Christian anymore. No, that's ridiculous. But if on the other hand, you're going to say, I am pre-tribulation, or I'm post-tribulation, or I'm mid-tribulation, because of these reasons, and the next words that come out of my mouth are all properly understood and laid out Bible verses, great. But make sure the conversation and the thinking doesn't stop there. Anything else you got? It's good. All right. Scary. Uh, <laughs> here's a question from Mary. Um, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even the 10th generation. So how did David, his father, and his brothers enter the temple? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, I guess we should turn to the book of Ruth. Yeah. Actually, we can turn to a few verses before that. But uh, why <laughs> is it that David, being a descendant of a Moabite, 
was able to enter the temple? Why is it that Jesus, being the descendant of a Moabite, with documentation in Matthew 1, was able to enter the temple? Yeah, now this is very interesting, these passages. And if we're not careful, we can get into kind of uh, not really a racist mindset, but we can start interpreting the Bible anachronistically through like a racial kind of lens. So when people read passages like that, uh, talking about the Moabites and their prohibitions within the new land, the question always becomes, why the prohibition? Is God against this particular people group, or is he against the practices of the people group? Now, what we see in the Old Testament is that there is a provision for people who are not culturally or ethnically Jewish to be in Israel. This is one of the reasons why, to this day, Israel is not trying to get rid of people that don't believe in their God. That's just not what they've ever done. So the allowance for people to come into their land and live amongst the people, to buy land, to sell it, to actually have a place within their economy, it's always been carved out throughout the Old Testament. And in Leviticus chapter 19, God is very clear to tell the people of Israel uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Saying that you were once a stranger and a sojourner in a foreign land, so you need to love those who come into your land. So God always wanted there to be love and respect for the people that came into the land of Israel. Now, if you came into the land of Israel, just like if you come into any country, you did have to submit to some of the cultural laws and expectations within the land. You did not have to convert, though. That was not something that was guaranteed within uh, within that those parameters. But if you did convert, <laughs> there was this idea that if I'm converting and I'm pursuing the one true and living God— there was something that could happen within my community of fellow Jews. This is why Jewish people can still, to this day, even though it's an ethnicity, right, even though it is an ethnicity to be Jewish, you can be converted to Judaism and you would become a Jew, right? You, you're, uh, and even in the New Testament, he calls them proselytes. So when you're talking about Ruth, who's a Moabite, she was ethnically a Moabite, but she did convert to Judaism, right? We see that throughout the book. She converted to Judaism and married a Jewish man. Uh, two, actually. So, uh, yeah, originally married a Jewish guy, and then he died, and then followed her mother-in-law, who was, again, a Jewish woman, followed her back to the land because she was just so enamored by the God of this woman and the culture of this woman, came back to the land, met Boaz, fell in love with him, and they ended up having getting married and being together, right? So all these things were her being inducted into the Jewish race. Because of that, she would be allowed to come with Jewish, yeah, Jewish race and uh, religion, more importantly. That would allow her to have those kind of preconditions taken away. Now, there was a reason for the people, the Gentiles, to be able to come into the temple. And some might ask, well, okay, well, if people are wanting to come into the temple, doesn't that mean that they are Jewish? Not necessarily. Because pagans... <laughs> They didn't really have a limitation on how many gods they could serve, right? So it was very common for people to be like, oh, yeah, I'm in this land. I got my gods for my people. But, hey, what's wrong with having more gods, right? And so there were people who were coming into the land of Israel who were more than happy to pursue Yahweh, the one true living God, as well as their other gods. And this is actually what happened. This is what went wrong, if you want to put it that way, in Israel, is that instead of Israel saying, you guys need to convert and see that there's only one God, and then you can come into the temple, they instead were like, oh, you believe in other gods, you come right in. And in fact, bring your gods into the temple, 
and things went very bad very quickly. So then we see why that prohibition existed if you read through the book of Jeremiah, where the people were not doing what God asked, and they were allowing the Moabites and the Ammonites and these other people to come into the temple as well as worship these other gods. So very, very bad and very problematic. But again, for those who converted, we do see a level of grace. And again, these passages are a little difficult because if you were just to read one of them in isolation, you might come away from it with the idea of like, oh my gosh, like God is saying that even if people convert and even if just because they're not ethnically Jewish, they cannot come to know the one true God. And obviously, if you read through the Old Testament, there's no way you could sustain that belief. So you have the law, but then you have how the law is exercised, how it's practiced and judged throughout the land in righteous ways. God commending people for doing these things in various passages of the Bible, Ruth being like the best example of that. And you see, okay, it can't possibly mean that because that's not how people uh, treated that law within the land. Yeah, and again, you can just read the whole law. Right. And you'd find out that it's not being applied in that way. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, I read the first verse, you mentioned it. But continuing on, it says, and again, I'll start from the beginning, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Verse 4, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, because they hired against you, Balaam, the son of Beor from Hethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So what's God's beef with the Moabites and the Ammonites? It's not their Moabitiness or their Ammonitiness. It was the fact that, citing the history and numbers, they tried to turn you from me. If right. you want to read the account of Balaam and Balak and all the other fun stuff. And they succeeded. Yeah, <laughs> and cost several thousand lives. But yeah. the point being made was what? To introduce idolatry to Israel. And if you go to any other prohibition, even in Exodus, of people entering into the assembly. It's so that you shall not learn their ways. Why were they supposed to destroy the pagan altars? Because pagan artwork is icky. Maybe. But the <laughs> other reason was because you shall not learn their ways. The emphasis is on what the message is, not the meat. <laughs> it's, it's formed by, if that's a word. Anyway, um, <laughs> thank you for the question. Um, here's a question from Yari. I'll... I'll pass it off to you. Uh, what about gender roles hmm. switching in entertainment? If uh, Cinderella became a female knight and carried off her prince, would you be okay with gender role switching in movies? Uh, again, it kind of depends. A uh, good example of this that's kind of coming under controversy right now is the new Lord of the Rings series, The Rings of Power. Mm -hmm. uh, big blow it by Amazon, and that's just my opinion. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, they made the... It's a good bet. Yeah, <laughs> they, good bet. they made the uh, character Galadriel. For those of you who don't know, she's a very beautiful maiden, a very powerful, magical being, and so forth. But uh, what was interesting about her is they have her portrayed in this wearing heavy armor and using a sword. Now, I probably read more about Lord of the Rings than the average jelly bean. <laughs> but the interesting thing about Galadriel is one of the nicknames she was given in Elvish was Man Maiden because she was very masculine in her features. But nonetheless, she is still described as a very beautiful woman as most Elvish women and 
some men were also described as. But the point being made that Tolkien was doing in that wasn't to, you know, emasculate the women or to feminize the men. They had exchangeable traits. It didn't make them less relevant. What mattered was the story. What made Galadriel and the mention of her being very masculine relevant was because in a section of the Silmarillion, this is the pre-Lord of the Rings stuff, um, there was an incident that was meant to be based largely off of not only the disobedience of Saul, but also the murder of Cain, the first murder that took place between elves. Galadriel uh, didn't know what was going on, saw elves fighting, and she took the first life. And so, as a result, she voluntarily banished herself to Middle-earth along with her kin, the Noldor, those are the high elves that uh, did the majority of the war against Morgoth and then his servant Sauron later. Nerd time over. But the point being made was there was a reason for those masculine traits, not just for its own sake. In the Lord of the Rings movies, Eowyn uh, definitely knew how to swing a sword, that lady, and it was relevant to what? her serving an important role in battle and fulfilling a prophecy made by, you don't need to know his name, about another bad guy who you probably don't know his name, the Witch King of Angmar. And it wasn't just the fact she was a woman that defeated him. It was Mary stabbing him right. with the dagger that Galadriel gave to him, by the way. Right. All these other fun things. But the point being made was that. Is the story what's the goal? Is the message, oh, we're switching genders. Right. <laughs> or is the message, okay... Why? <laughs> yeah. So very quickly, because we don't have a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, I, I would encourage you to look up uh, Jordan Peterson talking about this issue. He's not he's not a Christian yet, yet, but uh, he has a lot of good things to say about it because he's actually done a lot of extensive research. So uh, the main claim that our culture makes is that gender roles are completely socially constructed, meaning that they don't actually exist. There are things that we've just invented to make ourselves feel better within our culture. He is actually uh, not conducted, but he's been a part of a worldwide, literally worldwide, decades-long research attempt by various psychologists throughout, uh, throughout the world, throughout the globe, to try to figure out how many of the differences between men and women are biological and how many of them are actually cultural. And the way that you do that is you look at various cultures, you look at the way that they look at gender roles, and you start to see comparisons. Now, the main thing that they looked at the one that really surprised them is if the idea that cultural cultural expectations are what guide, direct, and shape gender roles, then you would expect that as the cultural expectations go away, the gender roles would go away along with it. They found the exact opposite. In the countries that have the most liberty when it comes to gender expectations, the gender roles are actually most pronounced. That's very interesting. The countries that have social pressure to move in a particular way. We think that we actually have gotten rid of social pressure. We actually haven't. Our country actually has very severe social pressure towards abandoning traditional gender roles. In fact, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, who is one of the founders of the feminist movement, actually said, we cannot give, not, not we shouldn't, we can't give women the opportunity to become mothers because too many of them will choose it and we will never gain our liberty. So this is very important. There was a move by the feminists to say, we can't let women become mothers because if they take on that role, everything that goes along with the maternal instinct will come with it. 
and therefore we will never become equal to men because they define equality with men as being the same as men. They have the same traits, the same abilities, same capacities. That's why, again, it may sound weird to you where you're like, why would anyone with a straight face say that men can, be, can compete in women's sports? We all know that that's not true. Well, when you have a premise that, no, 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 this is just socially constructed, the gender roles have been constructed, that's why there's a differentiation within sports, and we could break it down and create a utopia in our own image, that's just not true. We know it's not true. It's just completely false. So while I don't have a problem with gender, uh, with people taking on different characteristics or traits that are mainly gender specific, I do have a problem with us challenging the mold and saying that's because they don't exist at all. So I don't have a problem with Deborah doing a traditionally masculine role of being a warrior and Jael doing a very masculine role of murdering somebody, well, which is being really, an assassin. Yeah, being and an assassin as well. The whole theme throughout it is you're not going to get any glory, Barrack. You're the loser here. You ought to be doing this, but I have to. That's right. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. And I also don't have any problem with uh, certain prophets taking on more feminine characteristics. Say Jeremiah, my favorite prophet. But the reason why he is considered effeminate is because he is the weeping prophet. He is a very emotional guy, you know, and that is usually a feminine trait. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with men being more feminine and women being more masculine. I do have a problem with, again, art forms present ideals. Art forms present ideals. When we say that this is not just something that can happen, but we say this is the ideal, that women are just like men, that's what I have a problem with. And it is going against the main role that God has given women, which is superior. So when you think about chivalry and what we're supposed to do for women, why women don't go to war, why is that? It's because women have the most important role in culture, bearing and raising kids. That is the most important role in, in culture. And the it's men, future. yeah, that's right. Men are just there to support that role. That's all we're there to do. We're there to defend that role. We're there to support that role. That's why chivalry has existed. And that's why it's such a tragedy. It's going away. All right. Let us know if that helps you out, Yari. Real quick, got a few seconds. Uh, Holly <laughs> wants to know how to pray correctly as well as how to get involved in your church. Uh, talk to him just like you would anyone else. Do it honestly and sincerely and make sure you remember who you're talking to. The rest kind of fills itself out. And finally, uh, I'd recommend reading Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Showing up. <laughs> just being there, not being there to kind of check a box at the end of the week, but to actually participate. And use your gifts and to receive God bless you guys. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.